Welcome to Just a GP. My name is Ashley Broomfield and I'm here with one of our usual co-hosts, Charlotte Hesby. Today we have Dr. Chris Timms on, who is a new fellow of the RACGP and a GP in Kiama Downs, who has recently become an author. Welcome, Chris. Welcome, Ash. Before we start getting into why we invited you on the podcast today, we always start with a highlight of the week. So why don't you start us off? Sure. So my highlight of the week comes from the Headspace app, which is a lovely app on meditation. And just this week, they released a Sesame Street pack, which involves a series of Sesame Street characters doing kid-focused meditation. And my favorite was one with Grover. And in it, Grover's trying to essentially do too many things at once. He's trying to brush his teeth. He's trying to eat breakfast. He's trying to get dressed and go roller skating all at the same time. And I thought, gee, that's really good for the kids, but it probably helps the parents a little too. Yeah, awesome. And Charlotte, your highlight? You've been on holidays. Giggling at the thought of Grover doing all of those things because I probably relate to him too well. Yes, I've been on holidays. So my highlight is actually about my husband and I went for two nights in a city hotel with views of the Sydney Harbour. And it's sort of one of those funny things, isn't it? When you live in a city, and for me, I grew up in the city, you don't really go on holidays there. So it was quite fun being tourist in a hotel with this magnificent view of the harbour. And we went for a ferry ride down the river to Parramatta, though Parramatta station is actually closed. So we actually only got as far as Meadowbank and then turned around and came back again. And I've never gone on the ferry down the Parramatta River. So it was just actually really nice. I mean, it's so strange still in the city, even though there are bits where, you know, people are behaving normally and there are normal crowds. But certainly in that sort of tourist zone of the city, it's still just, it's quite different. So there is an oddness about it, but it was nice being able to look at the city through the perspective of being there as a visitor. And if you weren't in Sydney on those couple of weeks you've had off, where would you have been instead? I would have been in the Philippines doing my Team Philippines work. So I would have been working really hard <laughs> in very hot, sweaty environment with a team of 40 doing health interventions in this rural community that I work in. And so that's sort of one of the sad parts of this. They're not doing too badly, the community that we work with, and they're out of Manila, so they actually haven't had any real effect from COVID-19 where they are. It still seems to be pretty much in Manila rather than out in the region. Mm, What's interesting is that when you don't have that opportunity to go somewhere and you stay at home, you realise the opportunities and beauty and the things that are kind of around you every day. Yep. And it is nice, you know, having a holiday based at home has actually got a niceness about it that you can just actually enjoy your home instead of rushing in and rushing out and doing all the things that Grover was doing, trying to do all at the same time. (laughs) Well, I must say my highlight's on a very similar vein in that my husband and I have set up his truck to have a rooftop camper and so we've got a little bit of a setup and we've decided to take a long weekend every month and go camping and as part of that we go camping the Friday Saturday night we come home the Sunday but then I get to have the Monday off to kind of do the stuff in the house that would normally kind of have a bit more time to do on the weekend like wash the clothes and get things set up and do shopping and things like that so it means that our weekends aren't 
affected by then feeling behind because you didn't get to do the stuff on the weekend. So that was a highlight for me to actually just take that extra time and not feel guilty about taking that day off. But then I ended up becoming unwell and needing to take time off work and have a COVID test yesterday. And I didn't rebook all my patients to telehealth. I decided to just have the day to get better. And I feel so much better today for doing that rather than, you know, pushing through and trying to keep seeing people because we've now got that little dangly carrot of still being able to work from home. And I went, well, I'm unwell. I really should take some time off. And I didn't. I feel really happy about it. But good on you for looking after your own well-being. So on that note, Chris, we have you on today because we're talking to you about your escapades documenting burnout and burnout prevention. So can you talk to us a little bit about your journey or interest in this area? Sure. So I really started looking at burnout after I fellowed with the RACGP. And I actually had a really well-supported training program. I'm very grateful for the mentors I had, the support from the training organization and the college. What I sat down and looked at was the fact that I had, you know, I wanted to spend 30 years minimum serving the community as a GP. And burnout is a real risk to your mental, physical, and financial well-being. So what I did was I said, okay, this year I'm going to give myself some external accountability and write a blog every month and tackle a new topic every month, something that is either supposed to or has been shown to either increase your resilience or to help with burnout. And I did recognize that, you know, there are all these systemic factors, which I didn't have any immediate control over. Resilience is just a part of the picture in burnout, and it is really important to address the systemic factors. But for me, I decided to work on my own personal resilience because I felt there were people in organizations like the AMA and the RACGP working on burnout and the systemic factors. So I just looked at my personal resilience and I took a look at 12 different projects and I started off very easy. So I just started off my first month by doing daily yoga and you know, yoga makes you feel great. There's lots of health benefits shown. There's a really good up-to-date article on it even. But there weren't a lot of actual studies on whether yoga improves burnout rates or increases resilience. I did find two studies of up to about 30 health professionals. One was on nursing professionals, one was on medical students that showed maybe a little increase in their Maslach burnout inventory totals. But nonetheless, I went and did yoga for a month and I took on 12 other projects. They range from yoga through to meditation, through to three good things journaling, which is a really interesting topic that's coming out of some US research. And then I started doing more unorthodox ones, like going to a Tony Robbins conference, going to see Brene Brown speak, did something called Cupid's Undie Run for Neurofibromatosis as part of community engagement. And I also snuck in getting married. So that month was pretty much just dedicated to the wedding and the month beforehand. But overall, I thought it was a very nice year. And I capped it off in November by doing something called NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month. And National Novel Writing Month is essentially a month where you're supposed to sit down and write something and get it done within a month. And I did it both to improve my own resilience through creative writing and also just to explore burnout. So tell me more about the writing to explore burnout. I mean, like Ash, I'm I'm well done for sort of going on this journey. It's a great opportunity to sort of try and understand what it is that works for you and then to share that. So tell me how the exploring in the creative writing helped understand your resilience. 
So I'm not the first person who's looked at creative writing from a doctor's perspective. There's interesting articles from a Dr. Melanie Cheng, who was interviewed by ABC Book Club in 2017. I found with creative writing that it has a couple of benefits. The first is it's a way to decompress. The second was that you can look at putting yourself in someone else's shoes. So by creating a fictional world, you can look at putting yourself in someone's shoes and thinking about empathy. The other thing that it helped with was that it gives you something that's a sort of a side project where you're not thinking about medicine, you're sort of working on something completely unrelated. And I didn't have a lot of specific evidence I found about creative writing and resilience directly tied together, but I found it useful. And there were a lot of articles about the value of creative writing for empathy that I read over the course of that month. So I like that. So it wasn't really just about writing. It was actually about exploring it from other people's writing's perspective as well. Absolutely. So part of it was trying to get in the headspace of another point of view. Before we get on to talking about the novel that you wrote during the initial stages of restrictions in Australia with coronavirus, I'm really interested to know from the 12 months of your burnout prevention year, what did you find the most useful and therefore have continued over time? So daily yoga was really the thing I found most useful. I try to make that part of my daily routine is get up and do exercise first thing in the morning. And there's some interesting support for that approach in a couple of books, one called The Science of When, another one that I read recently called The 5am Club. In terms of what else I found was useful out of that year, I found three good things journaling was actually a very powerful tool to use at the end of a day. So three good things journaling is based on some research from US hospitals where they had doctors at the end of a shift write down three good things they did that day as a way of sort of sitting down, decompressing and saying, hey, I actually did a really good job today. I helped some people out. There's also a role for three gratitude journaling. And there's some research which shows writing down three things you're grateful for every morning can be useful for your resilience. But again, it's not it's not extensive research. And I think that was one of my frustrations from the year was I like being evidence-based with my medicine, but there's a lack of, of large studies looking at what really helps with resilience that I was able to find anyway. Yeah, it's a bit hard doing the randomized controlled studies and things like that because as soon as they might show a benefit, then they have to be stopped anyway because you seem to be disadvantaging those that you're not doing it for. Absolutely. And there was actually some really interesting research that came out of the US this week in the American Medical Association that looked at a large cohort of US physicians. They surveyed US physicians as well as the general public, and they found that resilience rates amongst doctors were at the same level or generally higher than the general public in that study. And despite that, burnout rates were higher. So resilience is important, but it's only a part of the picture. But doesn't that just talk about the fact that in our career we have higher levels of stuff that we have to deal with? So exactly, it is more than just about having resilience. It's about understanding the nature of the work we do and then the things that need to be put in place to make sure we have those sorts of structures around us. Yeah, and I guess we've spoken a bit about that on the podcast previously when we had Bethany on who's the wellness officer at RPA and we've touched on it in lots of other episodes talking about how, you know, the building up of skills for the individual needs to be amongst a suite of resources that actually look at the system-based factors and, you know, where you're actually working within as well as 
personal resilience. And the culture. Yeah. It's that whole cultural thing that seems to be, from my perspective, key in medical context. Because when I sort of go back and think how I was treated both as a medical student and a junior doctor, there was just so much around just having to put up with it. You know, this was how it was and, you know, just suck it up, princess. Yeah, and that idea of presenteeism, which we can't do anymore, which I think is quite a fascinating outcome from the pandemic that we actually have to take the time off. And like I said, there's that, still that little carrot that you could still be working when you're supposed to be recovering. And that's a difficult one to kind of weed out when you get trained in a system like that. So Chris, why did you write a fantasy novel about burnout? Tell us a little bit about the novel and, and what inspired you to do it and a bit of an overview of what readers might be able to expect when they pick it up. So the novel I wrote, King Tide's Curse, came out of two books I was reading around the time I started this project. And the novel explores burnout in the lens of a fantasy novel. And how I came to that, why I chose to do it that way, was I was reading two books. The first was Harry Potter. And the second was how to fail at almost everything and still succeed. And you go back and you read Harry Potter after having gone through training. And there's some really interesting parts there. If you look at book three, there's a part in book three where Hermione gets access to a time turner and she literally turns back time in order to attend more classes and to attend extracurricular activities. And she essentially pushes herself to burnout over the course of that book. And I thought, gee, that's an interesting topic. There seems to be some meat on the bone there that I can talk about. And the other thing I was looking at as I was rereading the series was Harry doesn't actually get paid to fight evil throughout the whole series, although the Ministry of Magic employees certainly do and the Aurors who are paid to fight the Dark Wizards are. Part of me felt like Harry was essentially doing an unpaid internship at times. Now, I combined that with the second book I was reading, which was uh, written by the gentleman who wrote the Dilbert comic strip, uh, Scott Adams. And in his book, he talked about the value of overlapping niche interests. So for him, that was his knowledge of engineering and office environment and his love of drawing comics. And although neither of those individually, he was particularly successful when he combined them to create the Dilbert comic strip, he was phenomenally successful. And I looked at what my interests were at the time, and they were reading fantasy novels and talking about burnout prevention. There wasn't, to the best of my knowledge, anyone in that space. So I thought that's a niche I can fit into and work within. So I came up with this novel idea and it basically follows an 18-year-old Sydney cider called Gail Knott, who is ready to go to university. He's building his resume. He's getting all his stuff in order and he suddenly finds out he's a wizard. So he gets his letter to a prestigious wizarding university that floats around on the back of this giant turtle and he turns up to get trained to fight monsters. And as he goes through training, his colleagues start burning out and burning out their magical abilities. And as they burn out, they undergo a very physical transformation. There's no hidden element to the burnout. It's very in your face. And I use that to explore how we think about burnout and what we can do and hopefully engage people further in the conversation about burnout and also to try to reach people who might not have been a part of the conversation on burnout previously. Because I found with my Burnout Prevention Year blog, I was mostly talking to medical professionals and they're aware of the problem and I wanted to keep engaging the broader community as many others are doing as well. Chris, can I just explore something that you said at the start? So you were 
talking about book three with Hermani, you then talked about how Harry didn't get paid to do a role that other people got paid for. Now, that intrigues me, the linking that you've done with being paid to do a role. So take me a little bit further down your thinking of what that means to you and burnout and resilience, if you could. I'm just, as I said, I'm quite fascinated. So we know from the AMA New South Wales hospital health checks that there's a, in the, in the data they've reported, there's a large amount of unrostered overtime that junior doctors are not able to claim. And those hospital health checks also have higher rates of burnout symptoms. I think in the last one from 2019, it was 67% of doctors reported moderate burnout symptoms. I think that it's really important that we as a profession, we're doing it to serve our patients, but it is nice to be paid to do a job and to value your time as well. So, you know, we're in it to serve our patients and to practice medicine. But I, I think it's really important that people are paid their rostered or unrostered overtime. I agree with you, but if we're going to talk about the resilience sort of element of it, I mean, I, I think there's something else to be sort of looked at there, isn't it, about the motivation behind which people do things and also to that concept of what students do when they're learning and wanting to seek more because a lot of students, I mean, people are different and it's their motivation of what they're doing. Some students are quite happy to go and seek a breadth of experience without needing to be paid because for them the joy is in the doing rather than the being paid for. Now I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing I'm just making sort of trying to open up that sort of commentary around our well-being and when people do things from a motivation of maybe personal learning and etc versus it being a paid job for which then there becomes a different sort of, the thing that sort of holds you or motivates you might be a different motivation from when it is just from the doing of that particular activity. I think there's an element of devaluing when you're highly skilled but not remunerated from your time and the expectation is that you give that time and it's not necessarily donated willingly so there's a difference between someone going out and giving of themselves from an internal motivation versus someone who's highly skilled and highly trained who's being asked by an external factor and pressured by an external factor to continue to use those skills but not getting paid for it or not getting paid to the extent that they feel like they're worth and you know we could sit here and say well Perhaps we need to look at what our internal value systems are and focus them on different areas. And as doctors, we get paid pretty well generally more than most of the population. But I guess I do see a lot of people feeling as though their skills aren't valued in particularly more so junior doctors, doctors in training and in particular GPs, you know, when you look at the difference in a valuing of a skill set of the group of doctors compared to the rest of the, the doctor cohort, I think there's that difficulty with the, the comparison between other people. And I think there's something really, really interesting about the people who choose to go into general practice. And then I do think that there's a lot of internal motivation about what we do. But then at the same time, you know, we're the most efficient part of the healthcare system. And having more of us and and 
upskilling and putting more funding into our sector would actually improve the healthcare system, yet we're paid the least. Yeah, look, I think it's that real fine line between, I mean, if I think about a whole lot of the things I've done in my life, so for, for instance, Team Philippines that we talked about, I mean, that's totally voluntary. It's hours of work. And why do I do it? Because I, you know, to me, there's there's huge value in what you can achieve through that versus, as you said, the not being paid because someone doesn't respect what you're doing in a in a knowingly paid role. It is this sort of fine line, isn't it? And I agree with you entirely that there seems to be something about GPs that they're more willing to go that extra yard for their community where it isn't paid well enough. And we often don't recognise that. And then the junior doctors who's, there's this sort of culture of, well, you're not going to get further in your career if you don't put in that extra yard and you're not seen to be working extraordinarily long hours because you you obviously don't care enough or something. I think you've both hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I think it's about the balance between intrinsic and external value. And I really think that, you know, when I fellowed, the ability for me to be able to choose my own hours, choose the days that I work, to set my own fees, to set the timing of my appointments and to feel valued by the organisation that I work in because they were so flexible around those sorts of things was really important to me. But you don't always have that when you're a junior doctor. And generally as GPs, if if we choose to look at our internal motivation, you know, when, when I personally reflect on it, it may not be the case for everybody, but a lot of the people that I find the greatest benefit from working with are those that can't afford to pay me. And I make a choice to continue working with those people and accept a 50% discount on my fees for the satisfaction of helping someone work through their difficulties who couldn't afford to see you on a different day. And then other days I get really frustrated that the external environment doesn't support me to do that work and and feeling undervalued. So, you know, it is a really daily kind of or weekly, monthly, yearly battle between that internal and external valuing. Yeah, I really like where this is going, but it doesn't make the doing of it any easier, does it? I mean, you've got, again, as GPs, there's often this balance around being able to make sure you can run a sustainable business, be able to pay your living debts, feel valued at the same time as meeting the healthcare needs of your community. And that can sometimes be really hard to juggle when the reimbursements just aren't enough to cover the way in which the service delivery has to happen, which then is a whole system renewal thing and then goes back to the need of the individual to be looking after themselves, which can be seen as being sort of selfish sometimes rather than because they can't do the things that the community might need them to do if they were better supported, etc. Yeah, there is a lot of frustration around Uh, the inability to actually work with the core component of the problems that you see and being able to see what those issues are but not actually being able to help bridge those gaps. I guess the other thing that's really interesting to note in this discussion about payment is that I don't know if either of you have seen a bit of the data on your capacity to be able to cover your 
living expenses and do some fun things does improve a happiness scale. But then beyond that, it doesn't. And I don't know what the magic number is and where the data came from. I just remember reading it in one of the books that I have spoken about previously on the podcast. And that's something that I often reflect on is, you know, when you start to compare how you're paid compared to other people or how you're paid on one day compared to another or a month compared to a year and then you look at it long term and you go, actually, how great it is that we have a career where we are so blessed to work with people and, you know, I'm constantly surprised at how much I'm learning about what it is to be human every day and what it is to live every day and still not work five days a week and have enough money that my bills are covered and I can do fun things and not be worried, particularly in an environment like this, that my job is at risk of not being around. So I often reflect this idea of resilience not necessarily being you know, something that actually can change a lot. But the more that I reflect on my own internal value system and how I perceive the world and the kinds of ways that I look at things, the less that I worry as much about the system-based factors personally. Although I recognise that for a lot of people, you know, the system-based factors are really important. The more that I look internally, the less that I am upset about what happens externally. Yeah, well, I can go off at all sorts of tangents about systems. I'm aware, though, I sort of took you a bit sideways, Chris, because it was me who went with the payments thing about good old Harry and his motivation for him doing his sort of fight against evil. So tell us a little bit more about this book and your well-being. Has it been a stress for you? Because that would be a real shame. Or has it been a sort of a really good thing in terms of your own well-being and coping with COVID-19? Ash, that sounds like some very stoic principles there, accepting what you can and can't control. I would say act, you know. (laughs) Sorry to interrupt, but I'll have to do a little bit of a plug. Having worked a lot with mental health over the years, I came across ACT therapy, which is based in, in mindfulness, but it's about accepting what you can change, what you can't change, and committing to working within your own personal value system. And I must say that that approach has been so useful not only for me but working with patients it really ties in nicely to motivational interviewing and behavior change and all sorts of things so I I thought that was an opportune moment to plug ACT and Russ Harris who does a lot of training for ACT around the world has got some online programs now since COVID he's done workshops and he's put them online for anyone who would like to train in it to do it. I might look into that that actually sounds very useful. It's so useful. There's a really great one called Act for Behaviour Change, which is uh, specifically focused for when you've only got a short amount of time with people. And that can be really useful for a general practice setting as well. Going back to your question, Charlotte, has it been a stressful process writing? The short answer is no. There was a little bit of stress about trying to work out how the system works, how you upload something to Kindle, how you manage, you know, the the setup of a book and how you manage contracts with Amazon. But overall, I found it a very useful process. I found my stress levels were improved. And the only stresses were really just trying to work out how the book publishing system works more than anything else. Do you mean to say that medicine didn't prepare you for dealing with Amazon? 
<laughs> entirely. But isn't it wonderful that you can go sideways and you know you've got the skills in medicine to know that you can figure it out for yourself anyway? Absolutely. I do love that about our job because we're constantly teaching ourselves new skills that we can pick up things on the side relatively quickly. And I would say another benefit of general practice, I know that as a profession, we often don't like being the lifestyle choice because it is actually really hard doing general practice and doing general practice really well is extremely difficult day to day. It's not an easy job where you can just refer on anything that you don't know what to deal with. And you are working with people every day with you know, a lot of really complex problems that requires a lot of relationship building to work through, you know, so I don't always see it as a lifestyle choice, but it does have some lifestyle perks in that if you want to take an afternoon off to write, then you can, you know, you can choose to do on call. You're not necessarily locked into an on-call relationship if you if you don't want to be, um, and you can choose where your location of work is and what practice you want to work in and how you want to work. And so I think that is a bonus that we can put some time into our other enjoyments of life, which is so important, I think. Yeah. And it's interesting that you made the comment about you don't want to be seen as the lifestyle choice. It's like, well, why don't we want to be seen as the lifestyle choice? What's wrong with that as being part of your motivation for a specialty that can make such a difference for the health of the community, but also be a choice that you actually really enjoy and fits in well with having a really balanced and enjoyable life over the entire sort of breadth of your life's journey, so to speak. I think it's the cultural thing, Charlotte. It's like we've spoken about before. There's something about working long hours doing night shifts and being all on your own and that is heroic somewhat and there's that culture in medicine that you know working a lot not having time to have lunch not having time to go to the toilet being out of your depth or in a you know high stress situation is a lot more exhilarating than a really nice balanced life where you can do fun things, you know. It doesn't have the same edge of high performance, you know, that elitism. I think it's that perception that there's a lack of elitism within general practice, which I completely disagree with having seen and worked with some amazing GPs who work at, you know, such fascinating projects and, you know, doing amazing things for their communities and lots of amazing research. There's There's definitely elitism within our profession, but I feel like it's seen as not elitism when when it's touted as a lifestyle choice. It's like a backup. Yeah, and I think you've sort of hit the nail on the head there too, is that we have this sort of cultural thing that in order for it to have meaning and value, there has to be this hardship and adrenaline bit or something that actually gives the value to the job rather than actually saying the value in the job is what the outputs are that we can achieve through what we're doing as well as being able to maintain a healthy life ourselves. So can you give us a bit of a spoiler, Chris, on the book and where people can find it to read it? The book's available on Amazon and it's available in ebook or paperback. Now, one of the joys of COVID, one of the interesting factors of COVID is that Amazon's not actually shipping non-essential services to Australia, which my book obviously 
fits under the category of non-essential. I have just recently worked out how to get a couple of copies delivered for me and my nana and a few other people via Australia Post Shopmate. But for now, it's uh, available as an ebook on um, the Amazon store. Uh, so via your Kindle app or Kindle e-reader. The, oh, gee, spoilers. I think you've given us spoilers already, haven't you? We know who it's about and I'm going to be mean here, Ash, and say I don't want any more spoilers. I actually want an incentive <laughs> to now go and find it. I guess I was more wondering, does the protagonist become a GP? <laughs> they are trained to fix the fractures in reality, so they're training as fracture smiths. Oh, right. I can tell you that my wife loved it. And she's not at all biased. No, she's not at all biased. She's a harsh critic of anything. Uh, no, she's lovely. She's a very talented individual. One of the interesting things was uh, one of my colleagues who I was on the GP student network with for a while, Dr. Kristen Dang, reached out and I hadn't been in touch with her for a while, but she offered to do a proofread when I put out the initial draft. And that was extremely useful. Very grateful to her for her help there. So it's funny seeing these little links back to colleagues you haven't chatted to in a while, remembering that a lot of GPs have all these side skills that we just aren't aware of sometimes. Shopmate is excellent, isn't it? Yes, it's so good. <laughs> so for those listening, it's Australia Post. You can set up a US mailbox. So you basically anything that doesn't post to Australia, Australia Post will accept the delivery to their warehouse and then ship it from the warehouse to Australia. So there's a bit of extra shipping costs involved, but if there's something that you really, really want from the States that you want to get over here, then Shopmate does it. And there used to be all sorts of external shipping companies that would do it, but now it's super easy with Australia Post. Can I say this is completely irrelevant to Shopmate in the US. My daughter's living in Budapest at the moment and they still aren't shipping anything anywhere and that's just very irritating. Wow. I'd love a shop made that can allow, you know, some facility to post backwards and forwards. Maybe you'll have to check it out, Charlotte. She could set something up. We've got to find, you know, something useful for her to be able to have made a difference while she's in Budapest for such a long time. Should we finish up with the tip of the week? I'll start with you, Charlotte. So my tip of the week is actually on the book I'm reading at the moment, which is an old book, but a good book. It's called What the Dog Saw and Other Adventures by Malcolm Gladwell. If anybody's ever read any of Malcolm Gladwell's books, then you'll know why I went finding it. It's a fascinating book. Got some really fantastic gems about leadership and choosing people and how things work. I just love it so what the dog saw and Chris so my tip of the week would be about lunch breaks and making sure you take them I work in a really well supported practice at Kiama Downs Medical and my boss is you know very dedicated very hard working but he believes that everyone should be able to if they want be able to go for a quick surf on their lunch break or a run or a walk or a meditation he's very passionate about making sure your lunch is relatively protected and I find myself a lot more recharged for my afternoon sessions if I get that in. So one minute, are you saying you go for a surf in your lunch break? <laughs> I'm not a big surfer anymore, but some of the doctors at my practice do try to get 10, 20 minutes in the water because we're 100 metres from the beach, so they, they nip over and they nip back. But uh, it doesn't always happen. We try. Awesome. What a great lifestyle choice. Yeah. I live by the beach as well. I just hate being, you know, that crusty, salty feeling after you go to the beach and you don't have a shower afterwards. So I often, you know, think maybe I should go for a swim at lunchtime and then I go, no, I don't like being crusty, salty. 
Although it would be completely acceptable to all my patients to... To have the salt crust on you when you're consulting, yeah. yeah. My hair or something, yeah. <laughs> so my tip of the week is the resource that I spoke about earlier, which is the uh, Accepting Commitment Therapy training website with Russ Harris, which is actmindfully.com.au. So A-C-T-M-I-N-D-F-U-L-L-Y.com.au. And you can read a little bit about ACT. You can do the workshops. There's some books that you can read, e-books, order some values cards, and then he's got a bunch of free stuff as well. So that would be my little tip of the week. So thank you for joining us on the podcast, Chris. It was a pleasure having you. No worries. Thanks for having me. And it's King Tide's Curse up on Amazon. And thank you for your time. And here's to record breaking downloads of it.